Good morning. I want to welcome you to Rivermont today and invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And while you're turning there, I do want to especially invite you to come out to worship tonight at 6 o'clock. It's going to be Mike's very first sermon. He preaches here at Rivermont and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And we're also going to have an opportunity to pray for our body, to pray for this congregation, to pray for this church. So please come, 6 o'clock tonight here in the sanctuary. Last week, we looked at the grace of glory, how the Lord has joined us to himself by faith in his new life, his resurrection life that is with us here now. And that glory, that life within us is the weight, it's the, the ballast that keeps our lives afloat in the storms that we face day in and day out. And today, as we continue our study of 2 Corinthians, Paul begins to put it into practice and show us what this is good for. Why do we have this new life within us? What use is it? The Christian life is not simply about me and mine. My sins forgiven and we go to heaven when we die. It's so much more. It's about the beginning of a new creation that transforms our lives personally and begins to transform this entire creation. There is a wideness in God's mercy and we have the blessing of being part of His grand plan all around the world. I wonder if you see where you fit in God's plan. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 14. Hear God's word. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for these beautiful and powerful gospel promises that you've given to us. And we ask that you would open our eyes by your spirit, that we might begin to live in light of such wonderful truth. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. I'm not a gardener. I'm not a plant expert. I didn't even stay at a Holiday Inn last night. But I do know a little bit about crocus. There are lots of different types of crocus flowers, but one of the most common things to know about them is that they bloom in late winter or the earliest of spring, and often they're among the first flowers to bloom, even appearing under a blanket of snow. They're hardy flowers. They've been given by the Lord a special waxy coating on them that enables them to grow and thrive in an environment of death and decay of winter. 
When everything else around them looks brown and dead and void of life, you can see the crocus pop up. And it's the promise of new life to come. It's the promise of as we see this flower that has come to bloom, there is more life. It's, it's like it's a harbinger. It's a herald that death has met its end and new life has come. And shortly, that new spring is going to cover that same ground that at that moment appears so lifeless, except for that one lonely bloom. Paul, in our text today, speaks of new life that shows up amidst the death. And it is a promise of a fuller life to come. And that is the truth of reconciliation. That we are through the Lord Jesus reconciled to God and we are sent out as reconcilers into the world. Into this world of death. The gospel has taken up residence within our hearts and our lives. He's changed us. And as we are changed changers, the Lord sends us out as reconciled reconcilers, as transformed transformers. He sends us into the world of decay and death that is at work because of sin. He sends us out with life and light of the gospel. In some ways, Paul's argument begins to challenge what we perceive as life and death. In verse 16, he says that he no longer regards anyone according to the flesh. And that's a curious phrase. And in the NIV, that little phrase is translated 48 different ways. That one little bit is translated 48 different ways. And what Paul is meaning by that little phrase of not regarding anyone according to the flesh is that he's not looking to measure according to a worldly point of view. He's not looking to measure what's happening in this world according to what makes sense to our earthly senses, our earthly values. He says we are no longer to evaluate what's happening in the world according to the world's expectations or even our expectations. And now that comes as a direct assault on the values and the senses of those false leaders that had crept into the church in Corinth. For evaluating God's work according to earthly expectations, Paul says, perpetuates the death that Jesus came to defeat. When we evaluate God's work by how comfortable we are made to feel, or by how successful we may appear, or how well it conforms to our expectations of what should be done in our lives, or how showy we can make our demonstrations of faith, those were all ways that the false leaders in Corinth evaluated God's work. Paul says, don't do it. Don't do it because we then are considering people according to an earthly point of view. And when we do so, we buy into the shallow and carnal and fleshly evaluation of God and of one another. But Paul's criteria, his sense of what life is in the face of death is very different. His concept of the life of the Spirit of God coming within us is enabling us to suffer when we're called upon to suffer. It's enabling us to endure with contentment, even find joy in the midst of difficulty. These are all that that crocus of the new life of the Spirit of God birthed in us in the deadness of this world. He's saying that the life of the Spirit can take residence in our lives, take root in our hearts, so that we begin to pursue God's kingdom purposes even when they run counter to our expectations in this world. 
So Paul says he no longer evaluates the body, the body of Christ, the church, you and me, according to the expectations of the world, but based upon the new life in Christ that has been birthed and sprung up within him and through us as the body of Christ will take root in the world. There's a newness of life that is everlasting. There's a transformation that will turn this entire world upside down and it has begun in you and in me. How do we see Paul speak about that transformation here in this text? Well, first, we see that we have been reconciled to God. This text of 2 Corinthians 5 is one of the the classic and the, the clearest, succinct statements of what the gospel is and what God has done for us. And Paul uses some very stark terms when we're all familiar with to draw us into that life of what God has done. We see it in verse 14, verse 18, and verse 21. Look at verse 14 first. He says, One has died for all, therefore all have died. And in verse 18... All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. And then verse 21. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul is linking together in those three verses some critical ideas. That idea of union, of being joined together with Jesus, and also he's linking it to the result, the reconciliation that comes because of what God has done. We might have expected verse 14 to say, one has died, therefore all the others live. But that's not what Paul says here. The idea instead is that Paul points to our union with Jesus, that we have been joined to him in his death. And because Jesus died, all the people who are joined to Jesus have also died. And what Paul is speaking to there is that when Jesus was nailed to the cross in an act of God's judgment upon sin, I was nailed to the cross along with Jesus. And so were you. What Paul is saying there is when God's wrath and His judgment was poured out upon sin, poured out upon Jesus, it was your judgment and your sin that God's wrath was poured out upon in Jesus. Now that's, that's more than saying Jesus bore what I deserve. It's true, but it's more. Specifically what Paul is saying is that when Jesus hung upon the cross, He was covered up and joined together with me. In my death, in our shame, in our rebellion, in our sin, we were there with Him. So that when Jesus was crucified, our judgment died with Him. It's meaning that there's none left for you if you are joined to Christ. God's wrath toward your sin has been exhausted upon Jesus on the cross and you bear it no more. That's what Paul is saying. We've been joined together with Jesus in His death. And God's enmity, His hatred, His wrath, His, His, His violence toward our sin has been put away in the Lord Jesus because we were joined to Him in His death on the cross. Paul gets even more specific in verse 21. Let's take the first clause of that verse. He says, For our sake He, that is God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Now Paul's not saying that Jesus became a sinner when He went to the cross. But what Paul is saying, he's suggesting that Jesus is truly the Lamb of God. 
He has taken our place as the sacrifice for sin. And our guilt, our sin, our shame was credited. It was imputed. It was given over to Jesus. So that all of our judgment was exhausted in the Lamb of God who went to the cross in our place. On that Good Friday, when Jesus was nailed to the cross and the skies went dark, Jesus was dying our death for our sin. For us as a community, as a, as a body, and for you and for me as individuals. And that means every lie, every falsehood told, every truth that stretched, every lustful look, each and every hateful thought, every ounce of our pride was nailed to the cross in Jesus' body in order that God's judgment might be poured out upon it. He bore the curse for our sin as the Lamb of God and our lives were put to death in Him. Jesus entered into our world. And by joining His life to ours, we might be judged. We might be put to death for our sin in Him. So we no longer have to hide our fear or our guilt or our shame because it was exposed and nailed to the cross. And we bear it no more. Do you feel filthy in guilt today take a long look at the cross where jesus died the death you should have died do you feel weighed down by the power of some sin that you think if anyone knew about it they would turn against me surely god knows about it and he can't stand the sight of me because of my sin if you think that today take a long hard look at the cross where all of God's wrath was exhausted, it was poured out upon Jesus that you might be clean. The second clause of verse 21 continues. So that in Him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Just as we are joined to Jesus in His death, we are also joined to Jesus in His life of obedience. Now that's so critical for us to understand and grasp if we were to live with any kind of confidence in this life. Jesus' spotless life of perfection, His complete and unwavering obedience to every command of God, every law of God, every expectation that God has of a human being, His perfect record of fulfilling every bit of it is credited to you. It's given to you. It is imputed to you as if you had been the one to do it. When God the Father looks upon you, if you are joined to the Lord Jesus, He sees a child of righteousness with Jesus wrapped about you, making you new. And because that's true, because the righteousness of Jesus has been given to you, the expectations of the law have been fulfilled in Jesus, we no longer have to attempt to prove ourselves worthy of God's love. We don't have to strive to have His delight. The Lord isn't looking at us and waiting for us to to fill some long list of requirements before He can give us His love and give us a relationship. He doesn't do that because Jesus has already fulfilled it. And then He's credited it to us. He has given it to us as if we had fulfilled these things. Our death, our sin, was laid upon the Lord Jesus. And His life and His righteousness 
is given to you and to me. There was a great exchange that took place. A couple of years ago, I taught our youth about this biblical idea, and I used a craft to try to help them catch what it really means. I had a couple of T-shirts, and I stood in the front of the youth house, and I had them call out to me every sin that they would be brave enough to publicly confess. And I would write it on the T-shirt. Say, just tell me all of these things. And so they said, lust and slander and idolatry and hatred and injustice and pride and all these things, on and on and on. And I wrote the name of all those sins on that T-shirt as our record of sin and shame. And then on the other shirt, I asked them to call out and label all the holy and righteous things that Jesus has done. Tell me about His perfect obedience. And so they called out and I wrote them. Perfect love. He always served. He told the truth every time. He treated people with the perfect mix of justice and compassion. He obeyed his parents all the time. You should know they did say that. It was important. (laughs) He obeyed his parents all the time. And on and on and on they went. All of Jesus' perfections and righteousness and obedience, they called out and I wrote it on that shirt. So we had two shirts. One filled up with sin and the other filled up with righteousness. And then I called a couple students to come to the front of the room. And I said, uh, you two put these shirts on. There was a little bit of hubbub about which one of them had to wear the sin shirt. (laughs) Nobody wanted to be able to see on the outside all the stuff that we know is on the inside. But it's true. But they did it. One sinner and one perfect. One sinner like us and one perfect like Jesus. And then I told them to swap shirts. That's what Paul is describing here. The swapping of record, the swapping of shirts, the swapping of standing before our Heavenly Father. We have been joined to Jesus in His death. And in His death, all of our sin has been judged in Him already. And He's given to us through being joined to Him His record of righteousness, His perfection, His obedience. It is His robe of righteousness wrapped around His children. That's your standing before your Heavenly Father. He looks upon you and sees Jesus' righteousness. And as a result of that, as a result of your judgment being taken away, we are reconciled to God. The offense that our Heavenly Father had against us has been removed. It's been taken away. That which stood in the way of our fellowship with God, our friendship with God, it's been removed so that we might have that fellowship and that friendship restored with our Heavenly Father. He looks upon us with a smile. He looks upon us with delight because to His eyes you look like Jesus. There's a great exchange that has taken place. In verses 18 and 19, it tells us this was all God's work. God was the one who was reconciling us to Himself. The Gospel is not about God giving us a new opportunity to find a way to get on His good side. That's not the Gospel. But rather, the Gospel is a declaration. It's, it's a, a, a proclamation that God has done what is necessary that we can be right with Him Because of what He has already done. We were dead in our sins. Dead in our trespasses. And God made us alive in Christ. And we've received fellowship. And restoration. And the living of God inside of us. It's happened. Because of what God determined to do 
for His children. So today, we can experience peace because God has already made peace on our behalf. Do you feel it? Do you know that there was formerly an enmity, there was formerly a place of war between you and the Creator in your life, and it's gone. It's been removed because of what Jesus did for you on the cross and in His resurrection. If you're anything like me, there are times when an illness comes in your life or you have dreams that are dashed or you are feeling upset because people don't like you or... You wonder, is God really for me in this hard time? Is He truly with me? Is He here? Is He is He present? Is He loving? Maybe He's so busy with all of this God stuff out there that He's forgotten about little old me. Sometimes we wonder, God, have You turned Your back on me because of something that I did? Friends, that is not how God operates. That's not how He views us. We have been reconciled. The work is done. We are reconciled to fellowship with God. And we have His delight and His present love because of what Jesus has already accomplished. God has given us everything. He's given us forgiveness. He's given us life. He's given us peace. He's given us reconciliation. He has given us His very self. And He also calls for you and for me to give everything in return. He has given us everything and He calls for our very lives to be lived for Him. One of the implications of being reconciled to the Lord of the universe is the recognition that we no longer belong to ourselves, but we belong to Him. If we've been reconciled to God, we belong to God. Look again at verse 15. At the end, he said, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He's saying we are joined to Jesus in his death and joined to Jesus in his life. And we no longer live for ourselves or our agendas or our expectations or our plans. He has put us to death. And He has brought us to to life in the Lord Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. And now we are free to live as people who belong to Him. To follow where He calls us to go. To follow Him as disciples wherever He leads us to go. That's what lies behind verses 17 and 18. We have a new life within us. We are a new creation. From a place of spiritual death, Jesus' life has taken root within us. That first crocus of the new creation has been birthed in you. And now it is growing by the power of the Spirit. And Christ is being formed in you. You are being transformed if you belong to Jesus. And if you're being transformed in your your life, you know that you are being being given freedom to live for His kingdom and His agenda rather than your own. We are liberated liberated from the prison of self in order to live for Christ because we belong to Him. Many of us have seen the movie Frozen. And some of us have seen it lots and lots and lots of times. And if you haven't seen the movie, I feel pretty confident that you've heard the song, Let It Go. I'm not going to sing it, I promise. No. But, you know, little girls and big girls and little boys and big boys sing that song all the time. One friend 
pointed out a grand irony about that song in the part of the movie Frozen. You know, Princess Elsa sang that song, Let It Go, an enthralling number about her freedom, her power to be free, her power to live exactly how she wanted to live. She sang that song while locked in an ice prison of her own making. Ever notice that? She created this huge ice castle. It was essentially a prison, and she's inside that prison singing about being free. And it is such a lie. She belts out this catchy tune about living in freedom all the while she is imprisoned to herself. Friends, you and I are tempted to live the same way. We are imprisoned to self. We think that we are free to do what we want, but we're only free to do what our selfish desires want until the Spirit brings us to life. Until the Spirit gives us a new heart. Until He gives us a new will that we're able to turn against self-interest and follow Him. To follow where He calls us to go. To be disciples of the Lord Jesus rather than living for self today. If the Lord Jesus has taken up residence within you. If His life has sprung up within your heart. Then you no longer belong to yourself. But you belong to Jesus. And He's giving you power, transforming power to enable you to follow after Him wherever He calls you to go. Jesus' life takes up residence in ours. We are free no longer to be controlled by those dark places in our hearts. His reconciling work has freed us from the power of sin. The power of sin has, has, has had its back broken. The power of corruption has been dashed by the Spirit of God as His life has taken up residence within you. We are new creatures. And by His power within us, we are enabled to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. We can give ourselves away. We can give ourselves to honoring one another with our speech when our culture is celebrating the coarseness of tearing one another down. We can be enabled to enter into a difficult relationship in His reconciling power. Rather than running away or hiding, we are enabled to step in because we don't belong to ourselves anymore. There's a new life inside of us. We can speak the value of the lives of the poor and the marginalized and minorities in this world when our culture may want to overlook them because there's a new life inside of us. We can stand for life, even life in the womb, when our world might accuse us of being small-minded because there's a new life inside of us. We don't live for other people's expectations any longer. We don't live for the world's approval because Jesus is alive within His body. The Creator has taken up residence in my heart and in your heart and we are enabled to go to places that we may not want to go because there's a new power in us enabling us to live for Him and no longer for self. Maybe you feel the pinch of that truth like I do because the reality is that Jesus is offending our proud American sensibilities, our self-made sensibilities, by reminding us we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to Him. So let's make sure that we are hearing 
Jesus' call and Jesus' offense very clearly. As clearly as I can place it, what Paul is saying is that if we never feel called to do or go or live in ways other than what we already want to do, it's not Jesus we're following. It's self. If we are never feeling called or pressed to go or do or be or live in ways that we don't already want to go and do and live and be, it's not Jesus calling, it's our flesh that's calling to us. Because He's transforming us. He's changing us from the inside out. He's changing us and freeing us from our prison to following the voice of self. Enabling us to follow the voice of His Spirit and His life within us. We no longer belong to ourselves if we've been reconciled to God. And if we've been reconciled to God, and since we belong to Him, He says, finally, we are deployed for God. We are deployed into this world as reconciled reconcilers. Look at verse 20. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Now, there's a debate among the commentators here as to which analogy Paul is making. Is it an analogy to the Roman imperial ambassadors who spoke with the authority of Caesar? Or is he going back to the book of Exodus where Moses was God's ambassador before Pharaoh? There's an argument to be made for either, but the point remains the same. There's the king, and I am not he. That's the point. There is the king, and I am not he. He calls on me to represent his kingdom and his priorities, and he deploys us to go where he sends us to go. For our lives no longer belong to us. Our agendas don't belong to us anymore. We can't follow a life of simply pursuing our own ease to make our lives flow according to the way we expect them to go. Because our lives are given to be deployed in the service of the Lord Jesus. To be the instruments through whom the Lord makes His appeal to the world. We are His messengers going in His methods to pursue His purposes. Clearly what Paul is saying here is that we live for Christ by living for others. We live for Christ by giving ourselves away. In the same way that Jesus has entered into this world in order to love and to live, you and I are deployed into this world to love and to live in His power for His sake. Another way to say it is this. We are on mission wherever we are, whenever we are. His kingdom priorities of of righteousness and holiness and truth and justice and compassion and valuing all of His image bearers. It shapes how we do our work. It shapes how we live within our families. It shapes how we serve our neighbors. It shapes how we view one another because we are ambassadors for Christ that our lives might reflect His values, His purposes, His rule so that the world can see Him through you. That's what an ambassador does. An ambassador is an incarnation. An ambassador is a personal presence of someone else. And it is Jesus whom you represent in the world. 
If we're reconciled to God, we no longer belong to ourselves because we have been deployed for God as reconciled reconcilers. Can the world see Christ in you? They will because spring has come. Spring has come in our hearts. The crocus has blossomed and you are a new creation by His power. You have been reconciled and you do belong to your Father. And so now go in His power to live for Him and not for self. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to be named as Your children. And we are so grateful that Your life by Your Spirit has taken up residence. It's taken root in the place of deadness in our souls. You have given us life in exchange for death. You have given us hope in exchange for despair. And You've given us freedom in exchange for being enslaved to self. And so we ask, Lord, that You would enable us now by Your Spirit to live for You, to be deployed for You, that the world around us might see You in us. And we pray it all in Christ's holy name. Amen.